0: Invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the Book of Hebrews, chapter eleven. Hebrews chapter eleven. I believe it's. I forgot to write it down. I believe it's page ten sixty six. It should be listed in your bulletin what page it's on if you're using one of the Bibles in the pew in front of you there. And just as a note, uh, I try to say this periodically. If you're joining us and you don't have a Bible or You have a Bible that doesn't make a lot of sense to you the way it's written. We would love to give you that Bible that's in the pew in front of you as our gift to you. You don't need to ask anybody or tell anybody. Just take it home. All we ask is that you read it. Open it up and read it. So this morning we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 11. Reading verses 1 through 7. Hebrews chapter 11 starting in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning we come to one of the most famous portions of Scripture. You've probably all heard it referenced. Maybe you've read books on it, heard sermon series. It's well known, often called the Hall of Faith, right? We know that it's about faith because if we were to keep reading, that word faith shows up over and over and over, at least 24 times in the chapter. And there's this steady drumbeat that goes throughout the chapter with that phrase, by faith, by faith. By faith. So in the chapter, what the author of Hebrews does is he walks us through Old Testament history, highlighting different people and events that show us examples of faith. These are like little snapshots. Little snapshots of faith showing us what it looks like. It's a great chapter. But here's the thing. Sometimes people take Hebrews 11 like it's this standalone work. Like it's just this random all-star list of Old Testament people. Or that it's this hall of fame of faith just sort of dropped in randomly into the Bible. That it doesn't depend on anything else around it. It's just kind of like, oh, that's neat. That's where they put it. But it's so much more than that. And we miss some of the, the wonder of it when we take it just by itself. Because this list of people has a context and a purpose. And without knowing those, we'd be tempted to say, what does this have to do with my life? I mean, sure, that's interesting to read about some of these people, but what does it got to do with me? Knowing the context and the purpose makes this chapter come alive. Let me show you what I mean. Imagine I tell you that I stumble across an old book in my grandparents' home. I'm just looking around on the shelf, and I find this little book. I flip it open. There's just a bunch of old pictures and some stories about people. And as I'm skimming through it, I was like, they're interesting but I'm not really sure what this book is. And as I'm looking through, I, one story I come across is I find a story like the one about a woman named Ursula von Schoenberg, Ursula von Schoenberg. And I read in this book about how Ursula lived in the late 1400s in Germany. I read that she married a man named Hans and had four children. And as I look, it doesn't say anything else about her life, But it does record how she died. Here's what I read in the book. It says that as she lay dying, to Ursula's deathbed came two monks, two Catholic monks, to comfort her with prayers, vigil, and mass, and to do the best they could to get forgiveness for her. So you got, picture this scene I'm reading here. Ursula's on her deathbed and these two Catholic monks come and they're going to do all their religious rituals they can. They're going to pour themselves out trying to get this poor woman forgiveness. I keep reading. She, Ursula, snatched the crucifix out of the monk's hand, pressed it against her breast and said, Christ must do it. He is my savior, my redeemer, and he has done enough for my sins and paid for them. Soon after this, she died. I continue reading and see that years later, when her husband's son by his next wife told this story to Martin Luther while living in his home, Luther said, such people doubtless die a blessed death as they depend alone on Christ. Cool story, right? Awesome picture of a woman not looking to empty religion but trusting in Christ alone for the forgiveness of her sins and holding on to that hope even as she faced death. Good story. Not sure why it's in this book. The stories and pictures around it, they all seem like a random collection of people scattered over a long period of time. Good stories, but I don't get their significance. Now what if I tell you that if I flip to the front cover of that book... Actually, not to the front cover yet. What if I tell you that Ursula von Schoenberg's married last name was not von Schoenberg, but Weller. The guy she married was Hans Weller. And now I turn to the front cover of the book, and I read that the book I'm looking at is the Weller family history. This is my family's history this is a real story now don't you think knowing that context changes that story for me why because I understand that this is my family there's people long ago who were doing this I I see Ursula here and I see that she clung to Christ alone Now imagine I turn from the front cover to the back cover and I read there that it says this book was compiled to help future generations look at the examples in it and follow in their footsteps. Well, that changes the story for me too, right? Now it has a purpose. Suddenly I see that I'm part of a line of people trusting in Christ alone for hope. And I know that if Ursula were here today, she would have been singing right along with me, in Christ alone Her example encourages me to press on in trusting Christ. Well, guess what? Hebrews 11 is our family history of faith. It's the family history of God's people. And there's a front cover and a back cover. There's something that comes right before it and right after it to help us know, what is this list of people all about? What is this list I'm looking at? The front cover is what we saw last week. Look in your Bibles back at 1035. Right before this chapter, the writer says, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised, for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So the author tells us right at the outset, the front cover, he says, hang on to your hope. We need endurance. Excuse me. We need endurance, he says, so that we'll receive the promise. He says, we don't want to be like those who shrink back and don't receive it, with whom God is not pleased. We want to please God by living lives of faith and thus preserve our souls. So what do we need? We need endurance of faith. So what does the author do? He gives us a chapter full of examples. It says, let me show you what I mean. Here's what you need, people of God. Now here's a chapter full of what it looks like. Okay, then we read the back cover. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. After this list of names and stories of enduring faith we read in chapter 12 verse 1 therefore since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses who are the witnesses all the chapter 11 people let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance there's that word the race that is set before us looking to jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith Who for the joy that was set before him endured, there's that word again, the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So I want you to see what's going on here. Front cover, we need enduring faith if we're going to get the promises. Then chapter 11, 40 verses of examples of enduring faith. Then the back cover. Since we've got so many examples, let's run the race like they did, looking to Jesus who also endured through suffering to gain everlasting joy. That's what this chapter is for, church, is to help us be spurred on to faith that lasts all the way home. The kind of faith we see in chapter 11, the kind of faith we saw in Ursula. Now, one quick word about how this chapter is organized, because it may appear somewhat willy-nilly at first just a bunch of names thrown in here but it's actually organized first in chronological order so it goes through the old testament in chronological order but it also breaks down into four time periods this is kind of how we're going to tackle the chapter over the coming weeks so in verses one to seven you've got creation to the flood okay creation to the flood then in verses eight through 22 you've got the patriarchs mostly about abraham but it's got Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph in there as well. Verses 23 to 31 are Exodus and the entering into the promised land. And then the rest of the chapter, 32 on, is the rest of the Old Testament. You've got some judges, some kings, some prophets. So it's organized into these periods. So what are we looking at as we start this chapter? It's not just a hall of faith. We're looking at a family history of faith. The pictures and stories that are here are here for a reason, to show us what faith that endures looks like. Okay, now before we jump into the examples of what enduring faith looks like, we need to talk about what faith is. That's where this text starts. After all, if I had to guess, I would say faith is probably one of the most misunderstood and misused words in our culture today. Everybody likes to talk about faith, right? To say, I have a faith my faith, and I'm a person of faith. But what does it mean to have faith? What does it mean biblically? Well, to help us understand this, let me mention a few things that faith is not. Faith is not just wishful thinking. Just like, oh, I wish this were true, so I'm going to have faith that it is. It's not just something I'd like to be true, so I imagine a world, I imagine a a God, I imagine a life, and I just say, I'm going to... I'm going to choose to believe that. That's not faith. Faith is not a blind leap based on nothing. You hear that all the time. That It's blind faith. That we have nothing to base it on. That is not biblical faith. We have a lot to base it on. Faith is not unreasonable. Meaning that it's, there's, you can't make sense of it. That there's just no way. It's contradictory to reason. That it's at odds. It's not what we see. And finally, it's not just positive thoughts that can create the thing we want to happen. This is probably one of the more common ones in our culture, that if you just believe something enough, you can bring it into being. Just believe that you're a type of person. Believe that you're going to get this job. Believe that you're going to get better, and you can make it happen. That's not faith. So what is faith? Well, let's look at verse 1. Now, faith... Is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So faith is the solid assurance of things hoped for. It's a settled certainty that what we hope for will come. We see three things about faith here three things. Faith is promise focused, it perseveres, and it pleases God. Okay, so this isn't all we could say about faith, but this is what three things we see here. Promise-focused, perseveres, and pleases God. So first, faith is promise-focused. It says it's the assurance of things hoped for. Well, what do we as Christians hope for? We hope for what God has promised. Our hope is not just things that we want to happen, like a Christmas list. Say, oh, I hope for Christmas I get a new truck. I'm just putting that out there so it's on record that if anybody's looking for a gift for the pastor, I. Never mind. It's not that, okay? It's not just a wish list of like, oh, faith is, I would like this to be true. Our hope is not just things that we think might happen. Again, I hope the Browns win the Super Bowl this year. Might happen. Might happen. No, our hope is not things that we want to happen or think might happen. Our hope is things that we are rock solid certain will happen. Things we have a confident assurance about. The question is, how can we be so sure? Because God has promised them. There's a link between God's promises and our hope. Let me show you this link. Titus 1. Paul begins his letter by saying that he's writing, quote, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Do you hear that? So what's his hope? Eternal life. Why does he have this hope? Because God promised it and God never lies. I have a hope, and why do I hope in that? Because God promised it and he doesn't lie. Here in Hebrews, you see the same thing. Do you remember back in chapter 6? Listen to verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, same phrase, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to our hope. So what's he saying? He says you can hold fast to your hope in God's promises. Why? Because the God who made them doesn't lie. And because he guaranteed it with an oath. So our hope and God's promises are linked. And In fact, look a little closer to our text. Look up in chapter 10, verse 23. The writer says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful friends we have a rock solid unshakable absolutely certain hope because the god in whom we hope is faithful he never lies we hope in his promises and our god keeps all his promises not one of them fails that's why we have the assurance of things hoped for because god is the one that promised them okay so that's the first thing faith is promise focused Second, faith perseveres. I'm getting to see this in the second half of verse 1. It says it's the conviction of things not seen. So faith is certain of the things we hope for. And it keeps trusting even though we can't see them right now. And that's the nature of hope, isn't it? That you can't see it. Hopefully some of you are hearing Paul's voice in your head right now from Romans 8 saying now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees but if we hope for what we do not see we wait for it with patience or same word endurance we wait for it with endurance when we have a hope that we don't see faith keeps trusting god that he is keeping his promises even when we can't see their fulfillment yet If we could see it, we wouldn't need to have faith. But because there are so many things we can't see, we walk by faith, not by sight. We keep trusting in our hope, being confident of the things unseen. All right, faith is promise-focused. It perseveres when it can't see. And third, it pleases God. Look at verse 2. For by it, that's for by faith, the people of old received their commendation. So, this kind of enduring faith, this hope in the unseen promises of God, is how these saints of old received their commendation. Now, that phrase received their commendation literally means they received a good testimony. Somebody gave a good witness about these people. Think about it in a trial when someone calls a character witness, right? Why do they call that character witness? To say something good, to establish their credibility to say like, hey, here's so-and-so. They're a good person. They, they're an honest person. They're a, whatever they're trying to establish. They give a good testimony. And we all know the better your character witness, the more powerful their testimony is, right? If as my character witness in a trial, I call, you were to call some homeless ex-convict brother-in-law of yours, he might say you're the swellest guy in the world, how much impact do you think his testimony is going to have? Not much. But now, let's say your character witness is the governor. Somebody's like, "You got the governor to vouch for you." Suddenly, that testimony gets a little bit of listening, a little credibility. So the question is, who is it that's commending these saints of old in verse one? Who's their star witness that they called to the stand? It's God himself. We see it clearly down in verse 4 about Abel. See it there? God commending him. And it's implied in the rest of the text. So what verse 1 is telling us that God himself climbs into the witness stand, so to speak, takes a stand, and gives a good testimony about the people of old. And what is it that he says about them? He says, they trusted in me. They believed the promises that I made. They had an assurance that the things they hoped for were coming. They were certain even though they couldn't see them yet. That kind of faith, it says, is how people of old received their commendation. So that's the kind of faith we're after. We want that kind of faith, don't we? A faith that grabs a hold of the promises of God and keeps on hoping in them even when we can't see. And a faith that pleases God and receives his commendation. Okay, now he's going to show us this kind of faith in several different people's lives. But first, he goes all the way back to the beginning. Look at verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, if you read Genesis 1, there's a really easily seen pattern. You see it over and over again. And God said, and there was. And God said, and there was. Over and over again. What we see in Genesis 1 is that God's word made the universe. As Psalm 33 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Let all the earth fear the Lord, for he spoke. And it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. So God's word created the universe. Literally everything we can see. And when he made it. He didn't make it out of anything that could be seen. Now we know from other places in the Bible. That what God made it out of was nothing. But that's not his point here. That's not what he's driving at. His point here is that everything that exists was made by God. And he did it with things we can't see. How do we know that? By faith. Right? Anybody? I know we've got some people who have lived longer than I have, but I don't think anybody was there at creation. Anybody been alive that long? No. So none of us were there. So how do we know that the universe was made by the word of God? By faith. Now why is this important? Why does he want us to know this? As he gets ready to talk about faith and God doing things and working in the unseen, why is he saying, you got to start here, friends. You got to start with creation. I think he wants us to know this because God's word is still working where we can't see anything happening. We can be assured about what we don't see today because the same God who made everything out of what can't be seen is still working in the unseen to bring about its purposes okay I know it's a little little heady so just take a second to get your head around this but I think he's trying to get us in the right frame of mind thinking okay there's stuff I can't see but just because I can't see it doesn't mean that God can't work in it to bring about what he's trying to create he just wants us to have that set of mind going into this okay now after he sets us up We've got three people we're going to look at today. Just three of them. We're going to look very briefly at them. Three examples of what enduring faith looks like. And here's the little tags I want to put on each of them. When we look at Abel, we're going to look at faith's worship. When we look at Enoch, we're going to look at faith's walk. And when we look at Noah, we're going to see faith's work. Okay? Okay. Let's first look at faith's worship in verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Okay, so here we have the story of Cain and Abel, the first two children of Adam and Eve. We read about them in Genesis 4. And here's what we read, just to kind of fill out a little bit if you're not familiar. Now, Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry. And his face fell, skipping down. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Okay, so here's what we know. There's not a lot here, but here's what we know. Two brothers. Both worshipped the Lord. Both brought a sacrifice. Abel's was accepted. Cain's was not. Verse 4 says that Abel's was more acceptable. Why is that? Well, there's a lot of speculation. A lot of people are hypothesizing different things. Some people think it's because Abel brought his best, the firstborn, the fat portions, while Cain didn't. Maybe. Some people think it's because Abel offered blood to pay for his sins while Cain didn't. Their reasoning goes that Adam and Eve surely knew because God sacrificed an animal to cover them when he kicked them out of the garden, they knew that blood was needed to pay for sins and they most likely taught that to their sons. If so, then Abel's sacrifice would have shown him coming to God as a sinner who needs forgiveness of sins while Cain just offers God some of his extra stuff. That's intriguing. Could be. But you know what? It doesn't say anything about that. The only thing we know for certain from the Bible, and what verse 4 keys in on, is that Abel's sacrifice was done in faith. We don't know if it had anything to do with what was offered, or the quality of what was offered. Maybe. But we don't know. What we do know is that by faith, Abel offered. But now hopefully you're listening you're saying, but Genesis didn't say anything about faith. How do you know it was by faith? We know because God accepted his sacrifice. Both worshipped, but only Abel worshipped by faith. He trusted God and God commended him as righteous. So let's just think about what this means for us here. One thing this should tell us is that it's not just about doing the right religious things. It doesn't just matter what we do but how we do it. Are we doing the things we do by faith? Sure, we come to church. Sure, we go to Bible study. Sure, we go to core classes. Sure, we serve. Sure, we read our Bibles. Sure, we help our neighbors. Sure, we try to love our wife. We do this, we do this, we do this. But are we doing it by faith? Is faith what compels and motivates and empowers what we're doing because what we see in Abel and Cain is that faith is what's counted as righteousness our righteousness doesn't come through what we do but by faith in what Christ has done for us that's why we sing no list of sins I have not done no list of virtues I pursue my righteousness is Jesus life my debt was paid by Jesus death so my only hope of righteousness is not in me but only in him or, to put it in Paul's language, we want to be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. So are we, are we walking by faith? Are we not just doing the right things, but are we doing them in confident trust in God. Now let me tell you what really stood out to me this week about Abel. This, this struck me maybe more than it has in the past. Here's the very first example the writer of Hebrews gives us of what faith looks like. I mean, this is his lead-off batter right here. He's going to set the tone. He's the first picture of someone who really hopes and trusts God and his promises. And what happens? He's killed for his faith. He's the first martyr. Right out of the gate, you're saying, hey, let me show you some great examples of what the kind of faith I'm talking about. Let me show you what it looks like. Guy number one gets killed for it. Why does this matter? Because it should show us that from the very, very beginning, faith is no guarantee of a long life or easy living. Faith doesn't promise us comfort or health, or prosperity. Faith does not make all your problems go away. In fact, it might lead to some new ones. Abel was hated and killed because of his faith. But Abel was commended as righteous. Why? Because of that faith. Cain could take his life, but Abel had a reward that no one could ever take from him. A better possession and an abiding one. A righteousness from God. That depends on faith. So, Abel shows us what the worship of faith looks like. Now in verses 5 and 6, Enoch's going to show us what the walk of faith looks like. Look at verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Here we've got the opposite of what just happened with Abel right? Abel died for his faith. Enoch never saw death. Now, I said Enoch shows us the walk of faith, but you don't see that word walk in these verses. So where am I getting that? Well, let's look at Enoch's story in Genesis 5. You can flip there if you want. Genesis 5, again, it's really, really short. We don't have a lot of information. Genesis 5.21 says, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Father's Day note, dads, imagine becoming a dad at 65. Oh boy. Enoch walked with God. There's that word. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not. For God took him. So two times, we don't, this is by all we know about Enoch here. What we're told twice is he walked with God. Now to walk with God in the Old Testament means to live a life of knowing God, of communing with him, of relying upon him, of trusting him, fellowshipping with him, looking to him. And this is what God delights in. In fact, that's why in the Greek Old Testament, where it says Enoch walked with God, both times it's translated Enoch pleased God. Why? Why? Because walking with God is what pleases him. Now, notice this was encouraging me. Notice that we know nothing else about what Enoch did. There's no great accomplishments listed. It doesn't say by faith, he blank. By faith, he blank. There's no accomplishments, no great feats, no mighty deeds All we know about Enoch is that he walked with God. He pleased God. Let let that be an encouragement to you when you feel like in your spiritual life, you don't say, I don't have the list of accomplishments. I didn't start a church. I didn't send a missionary. I haven't taken the gospel to the edges of the earth. I haven't seen 26 converts this week. I'm not that strong of a prayer. I don't have this list, this resume If you've walked with God, that's enough. That pleases God. What a life and a legacy to have that be known about you. To have nothing else on your tombstone, but he walked with God. And as Enoch walked with God, it says God simply took him. This is striking because in Genesis 5, where we see this, It's this list of generations and all the people before him and all the people after him read very similarly. So and so was born. They lived this long, had kids, lived this many years, and they died. And they died. And they died. And then at the end of Enoch's life, we're right where we expect and he died. It simply says, Enoch walked with God and he was not. For God took him. And look back at verse 5 of Hebrews 11. How was he taken up? By faith. By faith, God took Enoch to be with him so he wouldn't see death. Because he trusted God, death did not get to claim him. He had victory over the grave. So Enoch shows us a faith that triumphs over death. And friends, isn't that what we have in Christ? Listen to the words of Jesus in John 8, 51. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Same phrase. Now, does that mean that if we trust in Jesus, we're all going to be taken up like Enoch? No. But it does mean death will not get to claim us either. We may not be taken up, but we will be raised up. As Jesus said in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die... Yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So the faith we're after, with well, the faith we see in Enoch is a faith that overcomes the grave. Now, how do we know that Enoch had faith? Well, because verse 5 ends by saying that before God took him, he was commended as having pleased God. You say, okay, Well, what does that, how does that show that he has faith? Verse 6 makes the link clear. Look at verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. If you're a logical person, oh, this should just light you up. You should, I love the logic of the Bible. It's really this simple. He says, Enoch pleased God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Therefore, we know Enoch had faith. You see the logic? But why is there that link? Why is there a link between faith and pleasing God? Well, how did those two go together? Or better asked, what kind of faith pleases God? Well, he tells us, look at the two things we must believe if we want to draw near to God. He says, if you you want to get near, if you want to get closer to God, to truly know him, you must believe that he's real and that he's a rewarder. He's real and he's a rewarder. So you first, you have to believe that God exists. Now this sounds simple enough, right? It sounds straightforward. It's like, so you're just saying, don't be an atheist. I am, but it's more than that. You have to believe that he is. And here's the thing. You must believe not that a God exists, but that he exists. He, the God of the Bible, the God who has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one true and living God, the one who tells us what he's like, you must believe he exists and that he's real. Now before we just kind of say, okay, I got that, let's move on. Do you realize how much of the fight of faith is actually just our fight to believe that God is real? And I'm talking about Christians. How much of, of course we say, if if I gave you a quiz and said, tell me your opinion, you say, Yes, I believe God exists. But the question is, do we live like God is real? Not like He's an idea and a concept that we talk and sing about on Sundays. But do we live day after day like God is real? It's hard. And do you know why it's so hard? Because he's unseen. That's why faith is the conviction of things not seen. Because we need to trust in an unseen God and live as though he's real. Now that's a starting point. But it's not enough. Because faith is not just believing God is real, but that he rewards those who seek him. God promises that when we seek him, we will find him. If you're here this morning, that should be really good news for you. If it was just that God is real, if that's all I had to tell you, and I said, I sure hope you bump into him someday. He's great if you ever get the chance to meet him. That would not be good news. If I said he doesn't actually like people though, He doesn't want to get to know you. That's not good news. But when the fact that he's not just real in all his glory and perfection, but that he rewards those who seek him, meaning if you come and you look for me, I will be found by you, he says. He promises that when you look for him, he's not going to run away. He's going to reward you. God presses in and steps towards us because do you know what he rewards us with? This is the best part. It's not just he, you don't get like a sticker like, you found me. No, when you seek God, the reward you get is God. This is like, sometimes you see the phrase, looking for a wife. You say, well, I found one. You say, like, oh, great, what was your reward? I got a wife! Right, that was what I was looking for, and that was the reward. It wasn't that like, well, uh, she actually had a really nice truck that she gave me. <laughs> I'm just slipping those in there right there. Right, that, that would not be, you'd be like, that's interesting. Were you looking for a wife or were you looking for the things that she gave? That's what God's saying. When you look for me, guess what you get? You get me. And you get all of me. That's why he tells Abraham, Abraham, rejoice for I am your great reward. I am your great reward. He is our hope and our inheritance. So friends, if you're here and you're trying to figure out what Christianity is about, like, what, do you, what do these Christians get out of it? Is it just some like a good feeling inside? Do they feel like they know more? Is it a good moral lifestyle? What do we get? We get God. And if you seek for him by faith, you can have him too. And so our reward is that we will go to God our exceeding joy and enjoy unending life in his presence. So the question for us is, do you want real joy? Do you want real joy? hope i'm not talking flimsy imitation knockoffs i'm talking you want real peace do you want real life then guess what you need to come to the real god and when you come all who comes to him he will never cast out when we seek him we will find him and when we find him we find the greatest reward just like enoch finally that brings us to noah noah and the work of faith look at verse 7 by faith noah being warned by god concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith now you know this story i'm not going to spend much time telling the story but God warns Noah that because of sin, that sin that had pervaded the whole world, because of sin, he's going to bring a flood of judgment to destroy the earth and everything in it. But God tells Noah, hey, this is coming. But Noah, there's a way for you and your family to be saved from judgment. You need to build an ark and get your family inside. That's the only way to be saved is if you listen to what i tell you now you don't build an ark overnight right noah's work was a long hard work of faith and i am sure that people mocked noah for his faith here he is not on a coast not by any large body of water building a massive boat People did not understand him. They looked at his life and said, that makes no sense to me, man. What you're, what you're about, I don't get it. They thought he was a fool. Some said, Noah, you're wasting your life. Why don't you act like everybody else? By now, you should, have a, you should have a responsible job by now, Noah. Get some real hobbies. Stop spending all your time building a boat. Maybe they even said that he was corrupting his kids, influencing them with these crazy ideas. But in spite of all that, Genesis tells us repeatedly, to make a point, Noah did all that God commanded him. Why? Because he believed God's word about things unseen. God said, hey, here's what's coming. Noah can't see it. He doesn't see floods. He doesn't see water. But he says, I believe your word, even though I can't see it. And he persevered in trusting God even when it took a long time and he still saw no rain. And that pleased God. And God saved him and his family in the ark. So that Noah became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now there's so much more we could say about Noah. But let me tie these stories together this way. Try to make some sense here. The point, remember, I want to keep coming back to our context. The point of these stories is we need endurance. I said it last week. That Christianity is not a sprint. It's a marathon. I'm not interested in how hard you can go in the 100 meters. If after the 100 meters you keel over. Christianity is a race all the way to the finish line. So we need endurance. We need a faith that lasts. We need a faith that is promise focused. That perseveres. And that pleases God. And you know what's amazing is the one that our faith is in is the one that all these saints point us to. They give us little glimpses and shadows of the one that we put our faith in. All three of them point us to truths about Jesus and the gospel. Consider these things. Jesus is the better able. He's the innocent one. Who offered a better sacrifice and was slain by his brothers. Jesus is the better Enoch, the one with whom God was well pleased, but instead of being taken so that he wouldn't see death, he was given so that we wouldn't see death. And Jesus is our better Noah, the one who did all God told him and became our ark. So that when we run into him, we find safety and refuge from the coming storms of judgment. Friends, this is the one in whom we trust. The one in whom we put our faith. So let's keep holding on to the promises. And let's run the race by looking to Jesus, our great reward. And let's keep walking by faith, even when we can't see. Would you pray with me? Father, we need your help to do this. Lord, we know that's why it's in your word is because just like the Hebrews this was written to, we face hardships and trials and struggles and we're tempted to not believe. So Lord, we come this morning and we declare, we believe, help our unbelief. Strengthen our faith. Help us to hold on tight to your promises. Lord, help us not to live By what we see. For what is seen is transient, but what is unseen is eternal. So help us to look with the eyes of faith, to not evaluate your promises based on our circumstance, but on your character. Give us sureness and certainty that you will keep every promise. Lord, let us hold on to these things even when it's hard. And keep going all the way home. Help us walk by faith and not by sight. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.